Welcome to the Deeper Into Movies podcast. My name is Stephen T. Hanley. I am the founder and lead creator of Deeper Into Movies. We are a pop-up cinema based in London. Today on the podcast, I'm joined by director Edgar Wright. Edgar has two movies coming out this year, but we wanted to keep it strictly Sparks. So we're talking about his new music documentary, The Sparks Brothers. This is a really epic documentary. He has a crazy cast of people in it, like Flea, Jack Antonoff, Jason Schwartzman, Tony Visconti, New Order, Mike Myers, Weird Al, Bjork, Beck, Giorgio Moroda, Thurston Moore, Jonathan Ross. Jonathan Ross is a G. Jonathan Ross has got amazing film taste. I should say that. <laughs> anyway, um, yeah, The Sparks Brothers is a great documentary. Two and a half hours spanning 50 years of the Sparks Brothers career. And it's really inspiring. One of the things I really took away from it is these guys will not compromise. They've been dropped by labels, then they'll have huge hits. But whatever it is, they'll come back and make the record they want to make, regardless of it being commercial suicide. They do not give a fuck about the charts. They will just keep coming back and doing what they want to do. And they've survived through various changes in the music industry over the years. So yeah, great doc. Go check it out. And here is me and Edgar Wright. Okay, man, let's jump in. As a narrative filmmaker, how was it jumping into the documentary process? Was that fun or terrifying or like was the freedom liberating? I guess it was liberating. I didn't really think too much about it in terms of what the transition would be. I guess I sort of like I I I love watching documentaries and I'm always kind of in awe of really great ones. And I've watched a lot of music documentaries. And so I just tried to think about how best I could tell the story of Sparks and, 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 and also how I wanted to kind of like get across how I felt about them. And I knew that a lot of other people felt about them as well. And um, so, you know, in, in, in a way it was kind of liberating because there's a lot of tools at your disposal to do, do that, that, that don't come into narrative fiction. And um so it was something where, you know, did I learn a lot doing it? Absolutely. And I think if I did another documentary, I'd have a much better idea going in what it involves. But I knew it was going to be a long process. And um, but as a sort of, you know, and I've never really been a great multitasker, but this is the first year where I, I guess I've managed to do two movies in the same year. <laughs> and, like, and, and what's weird is that in December, like last year, I, I finished both of them on the same day and I had to do like the final check of both of them on the same day. And it was really weird, like watching them back to back and going, wow, that's a lot of movie. Like, um, so, but it was, th the whole process was like pure sort of pleasure. And I was working with a lot of great people who've done a lot of documentaries before, like my producer, George Henken, has produced and directed documentaries. 
like my editor, Paul Arthur, is an amazing documentary editor and the archive team led by Kate Griffiths are just incredible. So there's so many like people who would, um, you know, could help me into kind of this new phase. You've said before when you're on set for your feature film productions that you don't really have fun because you're just working so hard, you're exhausted, and there's always just so much to do. So I was wondering, did you have fun on making the Sparks doc? Oh, yeah. I mean, it was like an ongoing sort of process. I guess, you know, the shooting of the movie, the bulk of it went from like May 2018, like intermittently until, uh, you know, spring 2019, you know, like sort of, uh, and, you know, and I did a little bit more shooting for it after I shot the, my next movie whilst I was editing, like the, the final bit of shooting that I did was actually on the set of Leo's characters and net, because when we started the documentary process, that movie was like in the works, but it wasn't green lit. So weirdly the last bit of filming I did was on the set of that movie. It was also the last time to date that I saw Ron and Russell in person <laughs> because ever since then we've been separated by, the pandemic and you know like i spoke to them like for hours and hours and end on zoom but like the last time i saw them in person was on the set of annette what was the moment when you decided okay i want to make a documentary about these guys i know it's going to take a few years but i'm committed was there like a i was going to say a spark but that's a terrible pun unintended i think it was it was how it kind of came about was that i I'd gotten to know them for a couple of years. I'd met them in 2015, which was kind of amazing to me, having been like a a fan of them since I was like five years old to suddenly be like meeting them in person. And, uh, and I think that kind of probably started the gears in my head going, but I, I started saying aloud to friends of mine, somebody should do a documentary about Sparks. Why hasn't somebody made a documentary about Sparks? Like, wow, I've seen a lot of music documentaries and there are, you know, their sparks are way more influential and prolific than most of the documentaries you see. So I think I just kind of put it into the kind of the atmosphere, essentially. And then it was actually a Sparks gig in 2017 where I went with Phil Lord, the director, and I was doing the same spiel to him of like, um, why hasn't somebody made a documentary about Sparks? The only thing stopping this band from being as famous as they should be is like an overview. And like Phil just looked at me and says, why don't you make the Sparks documentary? And I was like, yeah, 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 I will. I will. <laughs> so that was how it came about. And then that night I pitched it to Ron and Russell. So as soon as I'd said it out loud without an idea of like when I would make it, who would finance it, like how I was going to make it, the fact that I had said it to them was like a promise that I could not go back on. What were you watching for inspiration? Well, I didn't. I didn't sort of like watch anything in preparation for it. I guess I, I just watch music documentaries generally. Um, anyway, like I, I mean, I, I always like always up for watching a good music documentary, and it, whether it's a band that I'm okay with or not. In fact, some ones that I find the most compelling are about bands that I don't generally like, you know. Um, I guess like in terms of like 
music documentaries that I I really like. One that I I guess it's like 20 years old now, which is kind of crazy to me. Um, but I really liked Julian Temple's The Filth and the Fury. Um, I, I remember I saw that several times when that came out and I thought that his kind of use of editing and archive in that was really extraordinary. Um, I actually rewatched it the other day and it's a really great documentary. So, you know, like he's he's somebody that is a documentary maker that I think is like really uh, got a, a great kind of... Um, method of showing the context of the times and the sort of the DNA that make up the band and reminding you of that in in like archive footage so I I really like his his documentaries that one particularly I love the fact he blurred out the pistols faces that was a genius idea yeah yeah like the I mean yeah it's like an interesting in in that case it's a great way it also kind of like keeps them sort of timeless. Mm-hmm. Like, um, I thought that was really, it was really great. I love the way you shot your interviews in the beautiful black and white. And you had such an eclectic bunch of people and fans. How, how did you manage to pull together that group? You've got like Buckles, Weird Al, Mike Myers, New Order, Bjork. How did you, how did you find out there were Sparks fans and how did you get them involved? Well, um, the inspiration for the black and white photography was that came from um, the Richard Avedon cover for their 1976 album, Big Beat, which has a a beautiful like Richard Avedon cover. So I was I thought, well, why don't we just shoot all of the interviews like that? And in a similar way to the Sex Pistols thing, as a way of making interviews a bit timeless, because like the archive is going to cover like 50 plus years the in you know like and and sort of standardizing all the interviews i thought because there's 80 interviewees in the film and they come from all walks of life but to shoot them all in the same way it kind of gives the impression that everybody was in the same studio in the same afternoon <laughs> yeah obviously not the case it was done over like four cities over like nine months but it's a great thing of like you it, it, it brings this equivalence between mike myers and like a woman who stage invaded age 12 in Croydon. And, and that's, I thought was a really nice thing to do because I wanted to sort of in, in, in doing that kind of show that like, you know, no matter from what walk of life you are, that like anybody's opinion as a Sparks fan counts, whether you're a megastar or like just a sort of a, a, a fan, you know? Um, and then in terms of gathering together, there was sort of like four different things. There's like people who've worked with them, like ex-band members, managers, producers, even within the producers, that's a kind of like a very like sort of lofty list of like Georgia Maroda, Tony Visconti, Todd Runger and Muff Winwood. Um, then there are people, artists and celebrities who've been on record as being Sparks fans, which like Sparks themselves knew about just through interviews over the years. And that, I would count for New Order, Bjork, Duran Duran, like Vince Clark and others. And then the next phase was me where I did a sort of, I guess, like a guessing game where I just assumed that some people might be Sparks fans. (laughs) And four out of five times I was correct. So that was me either emailing or messaging or in person asking Beck, Flea, Neil Gaiman, Mike Myers, like, hey, you must like Sparks, right? Oh, I love Sparks. And they 
were more than willing to be in the documentary. And then the final phase of it, I guess, was that we put the word out on social media through my account and Sparks' account to say, we're making a documentary about Sparks. Do you have any photos, videos, or just memories? And some of the emails that we got about people's memories of Sparks or their connection to them were like really strong. And a lot of those kind of fans who were in the documentary came from that. So the lady, Julia Marcus, who was like a stage invader, age 14 in Croydon, she had a great kind of story to tell. And then lo and behold, we had the footage because in that- Yes, I love that scene. Well, she could like, you know, we she could pinpoint herself. She's, I mean, I showed her the clip back as you see in the film and she goes, oh, there I am, there I am, that's me. So it was sort of an amazing thing to kind of like, to be able to kind of cross-reference all these things. What I loved is often when I'm watching music documentaries, I get very triggered when they skirt over albums that I love and I find so important. Like I was watching a Neil Young doc and they completely didn't mention Zoom World Tonight's Tonight. And as a music nerd, I was like, what? That's so important. But you went deep. You go album for album covering the entire thing and drawing it in a two hours 20. Yeah. I really appreciated that. Well... I felt that, like, you know, it'd be disingenuous to kind of jump over stuff because I think as the story of Sparks is they're a little bit like the tortoise and the hare in the sense of, like, their story is about kind of this, you know, determination to plough their own furrow, whether they're, like, kind of um, in vogue or not, whether, like, people are into it and they're having hits or whether there's complete indifference as they've kind of found a way to kind of keep going. And as such, like, unlike maybe some other bands where, you know, you just concentrate on their hit albums, it's as imp- it's with Sparks, it's as important to cover the misses, in inverted commas, as it is the hits. Because sometimes the albums that don't kind of register are either, like, influential in a different way, like, 20 years on, or they kind of like they've lost their way in a sense that it then triggers like a radical reinvention like next. So they're always important stepping stones. And I thought also you're covering a band for 50 years. And to me, as well as telling the story of Sparks, is you get to trip through the de- the like half a century of like popular music and tv and the business changing and so that to me was like the sort of like you've got to go on the adventure with them you've got to trip through all the years with them and see how they change like with the times or sometimes completely out of step with the times that was really important what was the biggest challenge you faced trying to condense this huge timeline I guess it's the thing where it comes down to it, where you just have to let some of your favorite songs go. So most of the things that are cut out, it's not necessarily like story bits. It's usually like a song that you really love. And it's like, you know what? We've got to cut out Suburban Homeboy. Like, and I'm like, like so it, I mean, some of those things have been um, saved for the Blu-ray 
there's a Blu-ray coming out, which has kind of like a lot of the stuff that we couldn't fit in. Um, so that's nice because there was some nice stuff that just ultimately in terms of the momentum of telling the story, you know, you couldn't kind of like cover four tracks from every album, you know, it's just not, not time to do that, you know. Did you know going in they had such a roller coaster story of huge ups and downs? And I just love the fact that they have zero compromise. Even when I love the fact that even when they get brought back onto a new label after a lull, they'll still hit back with a really uncompromising, uncommercial album if they want to. A part of me is like, come on, just play the game a little bit. Maybe, you know, like Capola, you see like one for the studio, one for himself and stuff. But no, they give zero fucks. They will just completely stick to their own agenda. I was definitely aware of that. It's part of the reason I wanted to make the documentary because I just thought their story of resilience in the business was kind of extraordinary. And I felt that because of that, they had got a respect, especially from the British music press, both in like radio and in print. Some of the bands that have been going that long just don't get like any air, like any airtime at all or don't get written about. And what I was always really conscious of with Sparks is that the British press gave them a stay of execution in terms of they were still treated as a going concern, not like a legacy band, not like sort of like a 70s band. It's like they're still making albums now. Like, I, So I was well aware of that story. And, and, and when I think in 2017, Hippopotamus was their first top 10 album in the UK since 1975, I was definitely starting to think something's kind of happening here. This is like highly unusual. So I was well aware of that. And, you know, I think in terms of the thing of playing the game, the, the funny thing to me is that, okay, so say you're a band and you have a big hit and then the mm. next kind of couple of like singles don't hit, you would return to the DNA of the hit. Now, in Sparks kind of case, their like breakthrough number two hit in the mid 70s is one of the weirder like hit singles of the 70s. So the nice thing about it is it's not like they're, you know, kind of going back to something super commercial because this town ain't big enough for the both of us is very avant-garde for a hit single. And I guess that probably in a way has always inspired them to sort of like to keep it left of center. And that like there's nothing for them, to, there's nothing to be gained for them in making something super mainstream it sort of ends up being a potential lose-lose in and, and any times that they have like maybe there's moments where they stuck too long with a sound or they did something that was against their natural inclinations it's gone badly for them so I guess that that's always lent them into the idea that the way forward is to keep making left turns all the time <laughs> and how was it having these two projects, Soho and Sparks running simultaneously. How is it, how is it switching your brain over to each project? And obviously I know you're, you're so meticulous. So I was wondering, well, how is that juggling? One of the only benefits of this global pandemic was that <laughs> there was a sort of point where I, I couldn't finish the other movie and I, I could concentrate solely on Sparks. So that was actually in a weird way, a huge benefit because like I'd been sort of doing them together and then I was able to just focus on finishing Sparks. Um, so that was, it actually worked out great in the end. I mean, I, I, that's not to say that I thank the pandemic. I'd rather it hadn't have happened. <laughs> so I've always been curious just from following your Instagram, just 
how many damn movies do you watch a day? Because I always see those huge to watch piles in your pictures. And yeah, you and Sean Baker are the most wild consumers of movies that I know. And I just wonder how you guys get anything done. I try to do one a day. And then sometimes if there's like days that have gone by where I have not watched something, then I'll try and catch up. Like, so I try and mix it between kind of like things I've never seen before. Like last year, when, when like, sort of like we were in real lockdown, I did like, was watching a lot of films and I decided to make a really serious dent into my list of like movies I'd never seen. Like most of which I'd already like pre-bought on Blu-ray because it's like, I know I have to watch this sometime and I'm going to do it. So I kind of like did yet last year, like get through a lot of like, the um my shameful list of like things i hadn't seen and uh but i try and sort of like you know mix up with like something i've never seen before and and uh and then occasionally just something i i like to watch for fun but like i but uh, yeah i've been trying to do like one a day i think last year was a sort of like a real banner year for i, I don't know how many films i watched last year and on top of that at the end of the year i, I watched all of the oscar nominees and all of the bafta nominees as well which I know is something that you should do anyway, but plenty of people don't. <laughs> <laughs> okay, quick final question. If you could pick a filmmaker and a band to each have a documentary made about them, who would they be? You don't have to personally make the documentary yourself, but something you would love to see and obviously a band and a director that deserves to be celebrated and given the documentary treatment. I guess somebody should make the John Waters documentary, right? Like, sort of, like, that seems like one that's crying out to be made. Um, uh, or, like, Russ Meyer, I like somebody like that. But, like, I think John Waters would be a great subject for a documentary. I'm sure, like, somebody around the world must be planning that one. Um, another band, that's a tricky one because, like, it's like, I, I got asked by GQ to come up with a list of 10 bands that were equally underrated and as influential as Sparks. And eventually I thought about it saying, mm, I think the thesis of my documentary is that there's nobody quite like Sparks. True, yeah. So, like, so I, I, I ended up not answering that question because I couldn't. I mean, I'm trying to think of a, like a favorite band of mine that don't have a documentary about them. Um, eventually I think Beck will be a really interesting documentary because I think he has like a sort of a body of work already like sort of uh, that is like, quite astonishing and it'd be interesting to kind of like sort of see his story that's true especially if you start going from like Odelay to sea change and things like that that's yeah oh yeah even before that the early years as well would be kind of amazing i'm sure there's like an absolute ton of footage as well okay thanks edgar so much looking forward to seeing soho thanks for taking the time to chat and i really appreciate you always shouting about film culture and that we need to save independent cinemas in London. So thanks again. Oh, no, my pleasure. There you go. Edgar Wright, great talk. 
super nice guy. Glad to hear he only watches one movie a day. I was thinking he was devouring like five and stuff. But no, just one. That's about the same as I do. Or I can do two and three at the weekend if I'm feeling YOLO. Anyway, thanks for tuning in. Thank you to my engineer, Ewan Henselwood. My music is by Joshua Eustace, a.k.a. Telephone Tel Aviv. See you next time for more talks about everything cinema. Thanks for listening. Deep into movies. Bye.